Welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Today, I'm sitting down with Gary Nissen, the Managing Director of Indago Digital and author of the guide, How to Avoid Choosing the Wrong Digital Agency in 27 Steps. Welcome, Gary. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, look, uh, it's a pleasure because I have to say, when I heard uh, that you'd published this uh, guide, I was intrigued to see from an agency's point of view what you saw as best practice. Is that the purpose of the guide? Yeah, I think so. The I think probably the starting point was an element of frustration, um, being involved in a number of, of digital pitches or digital marketing pitches, which I felt could have been run better. Um, it probably actually took me about two years to write. It was one of those those projects that you never really touch and you, you struggle to get around to. Um, so I think it was born out of frustration. And then in the end, I wrote it because genuinely I want to be involved in in, in pitches that provide a better outcome for, for both the client and, and the agency. Well, look, you know, there is a lot of complaints about uh, pitching. I call it pitch pitching um, because, you know, from our perspective, the whole reason we exist is trying to run a better process. But of course, you know, we'd be lucky to cover maybe 5% of all the pitches. <laughs> maybe I'm being optimistic. We might only cover 1% of all the pitches in the marketplace. What's some of the frustrations that uh, stimulated you to actually put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard? Wow. Um, I'm trying to think how I would, uh, where to start on that. I oh. think. No names, oh, no names. No names. So, never any names. I'm um, too 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 uh, intelligent for that. The I think probably the first thing probably be timelines. Actually, um, I think often you know timelines that are very tight. Whether that be to actually produce the documentation itself, but typically the time frame that's always tighter is actually the initiation of the relationship. You know, pitch ends on a certain day. The relationship has to start on a, on a, on a uh, you know a matter of weeks later. And so I think one of the key frustrations would probably be timelines. Um, and then probably the second frustration, I think, often the, the client's not asking the right questions. Um, so actually the responses, I would say more often than not, I don't believe we're hitting the requirements of that client. It's interesting you should say that because, you know, it's one of the things that uh, we see is that clients are very good at knowing what they want when they see it but really do struggle sometimes with articulating what they need. Yeah, totally. I don't know. I totally agree with that. I've, I've got a question for you. And I'm sorry to kind of, uh, you know, turn this on its head. You know, obviously putting this, this document in front of the, the country's uh, greatest pitch consultant, um, I'm keen to get a bit of feedback from you. I mean, do you, do you think it was all encompassing? Do you think it was a bit basic? Were, were there, there key things missing from the document? What, what, what do you think, Darren? Look, Gary, I think uh, I read through it and I thought it's very much common sense from my perspective, you know, because you're talking to, you know, we run uh, between 25 and 30 plus pitches a year. Um, And so from my perspective, and also many different types of pitches, you know, we don't just have one way of running a pitch. I saw in this document 
someone who was seeing what I'd consider probably the default way of uh, selecting an agency and was trying to give some common sense approach to how you believed it should be done. So from that perspective, I thought it was worthwhile. Also, it was fascinating for me because, you know, it's been over 20 years since I was on the agency side. And so, you know, to also see from your perspective as an agency person, I think you wrote somewhere, you've responded to more than 500 RFPs, that uh, it was interesting to see, you, you know, the way you experienced that. Interesting. I think I think common sense totally, and, and I, I couldn't agree with you anymore. I don't think there's anything uh, groundbreaking in the document, but I'd suggest that common sense is the most important thing when you are delivering uh, a typical RFP. You asked me why I wrote it, and, and I've kind of refined my answer. Totally there was frustration. I think if I look at my experience over the years of writing RFPs or writing a response to a, uh, to a tender document is – I think I kind of lost my way, to be honest with you. I think we, we started to respond to, to documents in a fashion that was too technical. If you look at what we do from a digital marketing perspective, it's often quite a technical response. And we were getting to the point where we used to win a lot of, a lot of clients. Our success rate in Dago was, was very high. Um, and then something changed in the industry. And, and whether it was us and the way we pitch, whether it was the the, the contacts at the, the, on the client side, whether it was the industry itself, I'm not quite sure. But we started to, to lose our conversion rates. And so we started looking at the way we were actually pitching. Um, and we started thinking, well, what mistakes are we making? Um, and that led me on to then producing this. Because I think one of the things that we lost sight of was the people that we were actually presenting to. Um, you know, we were going in with a, a highly technical presentation based off what we knew was a great product, but often it was missing the mark because the, the end client actually just didn't understand what we were presenting. Um, so we started looking a lot more internally about how we were pitching, and that was the final push for me to actually then write this document. Um, and that's why one of the key things that I've got in it is it's really important that the agency understands who they're talking to. You know, if you're talking to a technical audience, then you need a technical uh, presentation. Um, you know, if they're data-led and detail-led, it needs to be data and detail-led. But if it's very top-level, uh, more creative than... than Look, it's interesting you say that from my perspective because I think there's been a fundamental change in the last 20 years and, and I probably noticed it about 10 years ago because, you know, in 2000, you know, we had the tech bubble and uh, technology was, uh, you know, the promise of it impacting marketing was a, a huge... Yeah, a huge nirvana. This is pre-Facebook, remember, and, and yep. Google was very, very uh, infant in its development. And everyone suddenly was a, a digital agency. You know, digital agencies popped up everywhere and you had sort of creative agencies and digital agencies. And what happened over time is that they started to merge on one level in that almost everyone had, in quotes, digital capabilities. But what you still have today is some really deep technical abilities around the digital, let's call it, ecosystem. And then you have the ability to produce content and plan media channels in digital. Yep. And then you have this sort of heavy lifting technology. And still the two are quite apart. We, that's why we, in around 2010, we stopped talking about digital agencies and we called them technology agencies because 
They were the sorts of companies that could talk to the IT department within a client body and the marketing department and talk to other creative agencies and actually were the glue that held it all together. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. So we, we did a recent study where um, we looked at our the clients that we're trying to target, all the people within the clients we're trying to target, the, the, the decision makers. We looked at our current clients, we interviewed them, um, and we did the old, uh, you know, what are their personas? And you start speaking to these people and really that they don't want to know the, the, the nitty gritty of how it works. They just want to know, is it going to work? You know, they want those proof points, whether it be, you know, social proof points. They want to see the thing in action. So actually, even though we have, and a lot of agencies have this beautiful underlying technology and process, they almost don't care about that. It's too detailed for them. They just want to understand, you know, are they going to get results? Are they going to hit their KPIs? And I think one of the other key things that we realized through this process of pitching and, and then getting client personas, um, is it going to be easy? You know, we know that when we're moving agency, typically an agency that you're with has a lot of IP, sometimes, in fact, more than the client has, because they might have been working on the account longer than some of the client contacts. Um, and they just want to know that this transition is going to be seamless and easy and painless. You know, you're not going to see a massive drop in uh, in ROI, et cetera. And, and I think that's another key thing that the RFP process needs to do is make sure that it is as painless as possible. And I think, um, you know, what you just said there was the fact that digital for marketers became just the way of operating. So they no longer wanted to know what was the magic under the surface. Just mm. tell me that you can do the magic and give me the results I want. I just want to pull you up on and explore a bit around this idea of the RFP, right, which is mm -hmm. a request for proposal, which is a very traditional procurement approach, you know, and what it would be is that you have a number of suppliers, you send them out a RFP, which is a request for proposal, which they would, to be compliant, would respond to by answering all the boxes in a written form. They'd submit that. It would be assessed. There may or may be not a meeting around, you know, then question and answers or a presentation, and then they'd go into a negotiation with their preferred yeah, is that pretty much what you mean by an RFP, or is there nuances to it that I'm missing? Or uh, no, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. I mean, really, it's a it's a written document that one has to respond to, as you said, within a certain time frame. Uh, typically, most of the RFPs that we're involved uh, also have some kind of presentation. Um, so either it's a two stage where there's a written document which is submitted and then a presentation. Or sometimes it goes straight through to the presentation. But yes, an RFP is, is pretty much exactly what you described. Okay. Because it, I, you know, I personally don't believe that that's the best way of selecting agencies. It's a very good procurement process. But where you're buying in many ways a relationship, all that really tests is capability and not the alignment of values uh, and, yep. and and ways of working together, you know, which is so essential because we know that even the best agency in the world with a poor-fitting uh, chemistry with their client is not going to produce their best work. Totally. We, the way, and I, and I think it's, and I'm, I'm keen to obviously understand what, what, where you think the RFP fails and more importantly what would be a better option. 
um, you know, we talk around dating, you know, we've all, or many of us have dated before. And, you know, the, the first impression is, you know, this is the person you're going to marry that you're going to fall in love with. But very quickly, that can dissipate. You know, maybe that first meeting was great. And I think if you look at the RFP process, you know, really, you're just dating someone very briefly uh, and then making a decision to sign a contract with them for, you know, a year to five years. You know, that, 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 you know, to do that in a series of documents and maybe a couple of face to face meetings, I think it's a very big decision to make uh, with very little foundation. So I'm, I'm, I totally agree with you that the RFP process in itself is potentially, you know, faulty. And yet it is quite common, isn't it? There are a lot of companies that use that uh, procurement process, which can be used to procure everything from electricity to travel to uh, raw commodities to make uh, widgets. Yeah. So, so, you know, I think we both agree that, you know, RFPs, they, they, they are very procurement focused. They have a place, but, you know, go on, Darren, what's, what's, you know, what do you think is the, the best process in your experience to, to find an agency? Well, I'd also like to, before we go there, Gary, explore the fact that the other problem with RFPs is that you can basically mislead, exaggerate and lie in your written response, couldn't you? And, and, and whenever, oh, please believe, you know, we're, I'm, I think we're, we're almost honest to a fault at Indago. And me personally, and I think the reason I'm honest to a fault is I always got caught lying. So I realised that, you know, lying never suited me. The amount oh, of time, a creative that, exaggeration, then. But never, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. The um, is the amount of times that we come up against an agency, and and I, and I think I make reference to it in this document is, and you know, it's artificial intelligence because it's a buzzword. It's programmatic. It's whatever the buzzword is at the time, and and, and nine times out of ten, artificial intelligence is you know a macro at best within an Excel document. You know, it's some kind of globally procured tech technology which again, we know is typically, you know, nothing more than, than something you can do on, on, on Microsoft. So we come across that the whole time. And, and actually one of the points on the guide is if you're buying into technology and or process, and that's kind of the, one of the deciding factors in choosing an agency, you need to delve deeper. You need to see it in action. You need to speak to the person who's actually built this thing. Um, you just can't take it on a face value. So yes, I would agree. Um, probably not too dissimilar from award entries that often RFPs have an element of creativity, should we say. <laughs> and look, I'm, I'm glad that you said that because I imagine it's frustrating when you lose an RFP process to a competitor that you know doesn't actually have the expertise that the client was look, well, supposedly was looking for. Totally. And the interesting thing about it is, is that, and you, you're crazy to kind of say anything because, I mean, obviously to to put down a competitor, especially after they've chosen to work with that competitor, you know, it doesn't, doesn't benefit anyone. It just seems very bitter. Um, so, you know, Sour it's one of those breaks. things. Yeah, totally. So you just kind of sit there and you, you realize, but the problem is, is that when you next come up against that competitor, you know, is that uh, something that you have to, 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 to answer before in the pitch process? You have to make reference to that. You have to have a competing piece of tech because you know that's going to be how they're going to go in, which I think is the thing that we've always struggled with is, is that, you know, how do you then counteract that argument when you come across them in, in, in a later date? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And look, the other problem I have, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I think you did address it in the, the guide, and that the guide is how to avoid choosing the wrong digital agency in 27 steps. But 
The other part of an RFP is that it often asks for a financial proposal. You know, what are you going to charge in fees? Uh, and if you're in a pitch with potentially, you know, six, eight, ten other agencies, are you necessarily putting your best foot forward and are you informed enough to be able to put a sustainable financial uh, proposition in that proposal? Firstly, I wouldn't, we wouldn't pitch if there was that many agencies. Uh, we're, we're, we're kind of funny about that, I think. To go out to, you know, I don't know, five, eight agencies, to my mind, seems crazy. I think, firstly, from a client's perspective, you need to do that kind of pre-due diligence to find three to five would be what I think is the ideal number. I think, firstly, because you're wasting a lot of the agency's time, but also your time. I think also the less agencies that you have in the process, the more time they're going to put into it, the better the response is going to be. So that would be just, just kind of answering that point. When you talk about the financials, so often we'll be asked to produce a media plan, um, some kind of forecast, 100% um, uh, the cost for our fees with very little information. Um, and I think that's a massive problem. I think if you want an agency to come back to you with very detailed plans and financials, you need to give them a lot of information. And nine times out of 10, you don't want to give that information out to multiple agencies because that's, you know, IP that shouldn't be shared. So I do agree. I think that's often a problem um, where you, you're expecting information that actually can't be produced via the RFP itself. So you asked before about what my uh, my solution Please. is. Yeah. So we actually uh, work on the proposition that the first step is uh, to get a very clear brief of what success looks like. So we'll spend a lot of time up front actually getting a client to define exactly what it is that they're trying to achieve in the process. And the reason we do that is it's very easy to get led astray by an agency presenting some shiny new thing and suffering from fear of missing out along the way when it was never something that you're interested in in the first place. So that's the first step. Okay. Then we would go to market and we would, through our knowledge, our database and, and other ways, put together a view of the market, including who's working with competitors, who's suitable, both on, you know, primarily around capability, size, geography, if these things are important. And we put, we put together quite a detailed, lengthy report on who we would recommend for consideration, who are the ones excluded because of competitive set, and also those that would possibly, you know, because often the client will recommend that they'd like to see agencies, and if we don't think they're suitable, we provide a reason why. And we take them through that with the view to choosing six to eight at the most okay. to get an RFI, which is, from our perspective, case studies that prove the capabilities that they say they have in actual application with other clients. Okay, so almost the RFI is, is that kind of initial stage to where we're just trying to pick the final contenders for the RFP itself or for the next stage? Yeah, so so it's RFI's request for information. That's all we're after. Please provide some case studies. You know, yep. if a client is looking for someone that has the ability to, uh, well, to use uh, something that's relevant to you, you know, actually can demonstrate 
using artificial intelligence to manage mm -hmm. huge amounts of data to provide yep. a personalized experience, online experience in real time. We would say, give us the case study that shows you've actually done it. Okay. And um, then from that, we'd go through that. The client would read those RFIs and we would then set up chemistry meetings. And we'd call them chemistry meetings because it's an opportunity to meet and eyeball each other. The interesting thing is human beings in the first 90 seconds have already made up their mind whether they like another group of people or not, and then we'll spend the rest of the time collecting evidence for why their gut instinct was a certain way. But it's also an opportunity for agencies. We say to them, here's your opportunity in the first 15 to 20 minutes to really reinforce why this would be a good relationship from your perspective based on the information we've provided. Why yep. should you be in this room and why should you be considered going forward? And then hopefully there's enough time for a conversation, Q&As, you know, really explore, perhaps ask questions about some of the information put forward in the RFI, such as understanding any challenges for a particular case study or what were the lessons from a particular case study so that you get to feel each organisation and, and how those people in the room align. Well, well, on that, Darren, so one of the, when we're involved in this process, I said sometimes there's a presentation at the end and we, we do a mix of sometimes we have the account managers or directors who are going to be running the account taking the meeting Sometimes it might be the head of the division. Sometimes it might be myself. You know, so when you have these sessions between the agency and the client, do you? What do you prefer? Do you? Yeah, do you prefer to have the the C suite from the agency or the actual the the workers themselves? What's a, what's your preference? Well, look, Gary. Um, you know, certainly marketers will often say we'd like the people that are going to be working on our business. And it's quite an awkward conversation to explain that agencies don't just have a lot of people sitting around waiting for your account to <laughs> land, that they could be appointed to your business. So, But we do recommend to agencies, don't set in, send in your A team, your pitch team. Send it, We're certainly happy for senior management because I think, you know, we've both had enough experience working in agencies to know that the senior management really do set the culture of the agency. I know from my own experience working in agencies, when the CEO, and especially network agencies, when the CEO or managing director changed, often the culture of that office would change. So it's a good way of actually understanding the culture of an agency, but also we'd ask the agency to bring along people that would potentially be working on the business yep. if if they're available. Yep. But then the big mistake agencies make is they send them along and they don't give them anything to say. So there's all these what I call warm props sitting in the room, <laughs> silently nodding with nothing to contribute. No, I totally and I, I totally agree. The I mean going back to your point about yeah, I reckon you know the, the C suite do control the the culture of the business, but also I think they control the the the, the processes um, and the quality of the product. Um, you know, if I look at what a smallish agency like myself will do is is that you know it's it's the C suite that that change the processes, they update the product set. They're they're the ones who are actually controlling the product that is 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 coming out of the overall business. So I think. I do think there's definitely a benefit in of having the more senior people in the pitch because that's the product that really you're going to end up getting. And, and then we, uh, at the end of that process, we give them, the client the very difficult decision of which three agencies do they want to take through to the next stage. 
and okay. no more than three because we ask them generally to commit to spending at least four to five hours with each agency in a workshop working on a particular problem or issue that the agency could help them address. So it's actually a real workshop, not a presentation, where we get the client in the room and not just the selection panel. We'll often, you know, if it's a creative agency, we can even bring in members of their media agency to be part of that process and turn it into a real working workshop. Clients have often reported back to us afterwards, it's as close as they've ever got to test driving an agency in one afternoon or one day. The, I'm definitely into the process, I think it makes sense for, for numerous reasons. When you do this, this, this final or third session where we do this kind of face-to-face uh, problem solving, would the agency be given the opportunity to prep for it or actually do you want them to come in cold and see how they think? No, no, we often provide them with briefing, background materials and that type of thing. And they can, have, you know, depending on the timeline, it could be a week to two weeks to prep for it beforehand. Okay. But what we're really looking for is the age, it's the agency's time. So it's for them to actually structure the meeting the way that they would want to work with the client. Because most agencies will tell us they have a proprietary process. Gary, I'm sure that uh, you have a proprietary process for solving problems, that Maybe. this is your opportunity to allow the client to sample that in a, uh, in a you know, four to five hour process. Yeah, I totally understand. So we've, we, we've gone through this process, so we're kind of whittling people down. We, we, so now we're at the final three. Does the decision come after that? I've got two questions, actually, if that's okay, if that's okay Darren. Oh, you've somehow flipped this on me. That uh, <laughs> I sat down to have a conversation about uh, your guide, which I think is fascinating, but uh, oh, you've, you've now turned it back on me. Well, I'm, uh, I'm always keen to learn from, uh, from the last, you know. The, um, so we've got the final three. The two questions are, is, 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 that, is the decision made after that? And then the other question is, which, going back to my guide that I do thoroughly recommend, is some kind of scorecard so we can measure each agency individually. Yes, one of them will be around, you know, personality and, and cultural fit, but, you know, would you give them some kind of scorecard or would you recommend a scorecard so they can measure everyone uh, the same way? Uh, we use scorecards at every step of the way yeah, okay. because it's about due governance, due diligence and go- corporate governance. Yeah. At any time you should be able to have the process audited and through Mm. the audit justify the decision. And this is to overcome many of the suspicions that I find agencies have. Oh, it was all decided beforehand that, you know, they were just going through the motions. I mean, uh, I I seriously have to question, you know, uh, what goes on in people's minds that any marketer would want to go through a pitch process when they've already made up their minds. Cool. I have I have seen situations where at the outset a marketer has had a particularly favoured agency that you know they've heard a lot about or yeah, you know, but during the process have completely changed their mind. And okay, at the end of the process ended up selecting someone else. So this idea that uh, most pitches are predetermined is is absolutely a complete furphy. Well, if you believe that, then you shouldn't get involved, you know, just just only get involved in the pitches you think you're destined to win. The, the, that's the, a very I've, smart new business strategy. Only pitch for the work you can win. <laughs> I think more agencies should do that so there'd be less wasted time and effort. 
Talk a bit about another thing that we've come uh, come across, and sorry to kind of flip this, but I'm, as I said, I'm keen to, you know, to, to ask you questions, is we've been involved in pitches where, I don't know, so there's four decision makers, let's say, and for our pitch, for one reason or another, one of the decision makers, maybe key, hasn't been able to turn up. I don't know, you know, they've got a home school, their child, or they're ill. You know, it's my belief that the meeting should be cancelled and reorganised. What, what would you do in that situation? So we try and overcome this as much as possible, that before we even contact an agency, we put together a schedule for the whole process on a day-by-day basis, and we have everyone put in their um, th- this into their diary. So, so it eliminates things like, oh, I forgot I had annual leave, or I'm getting married in the middle of it, or something like that. But, uh, yeah, there's always difficulties. Yeah, and, and if someone... Uh, is unable to turn up at the last minute, then we're inclined not to reschedule because okay. because it will actually impact everyone, like it impacts okay. all the other agencies as well. But what we do is we just adjust it then for on the scoring that that person then is allowed for in the scores, but also we make sure that they're well briefed on when they return on how the rest of their team felt that that went. So they're yep. more actually likely to align with the other, you said four, they'll align with the other three. The danger is once you start rescheduling, suddenly you get headlines in uh, trade magazines saying, pitch yep. went for six months. Well, yes, because you know by the time it was rescheduled, it was two weeks later and two weeks later. You know. So we would rather keep it tight. Yep. Uh, and uh, and adjust for it than to actually constantly reschedule. Because I think one of the, one of the ways one of the ways we've fallen down before, and not fallen down, probably the wrong way of putting it, is that we know that the, one of the individuals is the main decision maker. We believe there's not a scorecarding system being utilised, and that person's not being in the meeting. As soon as that person's not in the meeting because of an illness, the essence you can't you can't win the pitch. Um, and so, you know, we've walked into that room with that belief that it's just never going to go away because we needed to, that person needed to see us because they're going to be making the decision. Yeah, look, um, that would be so rare because most marketers, in my experience, unless they're incredibly narcissistic and egotistical, are inclined to be more interested how their uh, team feel mm-hmm. because ultimately, yeah. you know, most for instance, CMOs and heads, you know, heads of marketing are not working with the agency on a day-to-day basis. It's their team. Yep. And therefore, if it's underperforming, if there's problems in the relationship, it's not it's going to rise up to their level. But very few have made that decision on their own. And in situations where we've had only one person actually making the decision, so incredibly small clients or clients where there really is only one decision maker, then we'll run the process with them. And, of course, if they can't turn up, then we're going to have to find some other um, way of accommodating. The other thing, Gary, is I think it's really important that when people are running pitches up front, you have to commit to the whole process and not just pick and choose the bit you want because... If you're going to make an informed decision, then you need to be part of the whole the whole process. I think you make an extremely relevant point, and I'm glad I asked the question because yeah, I think you're totally right. I think often you do look around for the people that you that support you through your decision making process to, to, in essence, to make a decision for you. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. This, uh, um, I like your viewpoint on that. 
what um because obviously the pictures I, I think I mean obviously we've worked together before I think a lot of the pictures that you would be working on would probably be larger than some of the ones that I'd be involved with do you think your process and I've, I've obviously got a view on this but do you think your process works for a a smaller pitch you know I you know a, more of a, a medium-sized business than a larger size business could you apply the same methodology um we, we scale and and uh we scale and design the pitch to suit the client. Okay. We also scale it to suit the size of the client and their financial commitment because, of course, why put an agency through that complete process when it may be only an appointment for a very small project? Yeah. So, you know, you need to be able to be flexible. And the, yeah. the key thing here is constantly looking for ways to ensure that you cover off the due diligence you know, that anyone could come and ask you questions and you can actually prove the outcome as opposed to, you know, just, oh, I liked them, so I thought I'd give them a go. Yeah. So we need to have that due diligence, but, you know, at least have flexibility. I mean, from your perspective, and I'm going to turn this back on you, what do you think are the the main things that, uh, for you, make a successful pitch other than you won? (laughs) Um, understanding the people in the room I'd say would be the first most important thing Um, and and pitching at the right level as I said that's where we've we've previously made mistakes Um, so understanding their level of knowledge and actually quite interestingly we we went through a a process of asking people their level of knowledge or their perceived level of knowledge and what we realised very quickly is their perceived level of knowledge and real level level of knowledge is very different so we actually do, we, we stalk, you know, like everyone else, we look at LinkedIn, we, we, we see if they're commentators within the industry and we try to get an understanding of where we perceive them to be. I mean, simple things. Do they have a Google Analytics qualification on their LinkedIn profile? So I think a successful pitch is really understanding the people that we're, we're pitching to and the data and, and information we present being at the right level. I, I'd say that's potentially the most important thing. Um, I think the other thing that makes uh, the process work well is when, and you made reference to it earlier, is when there's a really well thought out timeline. You know, it's properly thought out. It's not like, you know, two of the stages are very close together. Um, you know, they're meeting four agencies in one day and they're going to be absolutely zonked. Um, you know, it's when there's going to be a nice handover period to the, the successful agency. Um, so I think the second thing that's really important are, uh, a good timelines. And the third thing, which I think is super important in digital marketing, is access to data. Um, is, you know, you, you're looking for, a, a, you know, digital marketing obviously is very highly data-led. You want the agency to come back with a data-led solution. You need to be providing them with your own data. Um, right. So just to recap, I think the three key things is understanding the people in the room, their level of expertise, um, correct timelines, um, and access to client information. Okay. That's interesting because, uh, you know, there's a real concern that marketers have about handing over, you know, things such as uh, what they see as commercially confidential or sensitive information. And, and I think uh, the industry has done itself no favours <laughs> because, you know, for all of the non-disclosure and confidentiality agreements that get signed, it always manages to leak out somewhere and there's therefore a concern that, uh, you know, if they leak 
the pictures going on, what else are they leaking? I mean, imagine, I mean, think about, I don't know, one of the large global media agencies leaking, I don't know, Westpac style to us. I mean, you know, it wouldn't be worth it. I mean, you think about the trouble the agency would be in, the, how tarnished its reputation would be. I would suggest that they would keep it very closely guarded to within a few individuals within the business. I think you'd be pretty safe. But again, it comes back to that thing where you were asking earlier around how can you come up with pricing and performance if you don't have that data? You know, without that, you, you can't produce any of that. So I think the whole thing of this, this process is uh, we're trusting each other. You know, I'm trusting that the client's going to give me the right information, that they're going to be good to their words, um, you know, that the, the, the they're really, you know, invested in this process. And they need to trust me on the flip side that I'm going to look after their data and, and I'm going to be honest and integral throughout the whole process. And I think you need that trust between the two parties. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, I always wonder about those clients that go out to six or eight agencies and, you know, want the RFP, but uh, how much are they exposing themselves to the fact that they're giving out, you know, you have to give a certain amount of yourself away in the RFP. Yeah. I mean, I know uh, an agency that uh, said to me, oh, well, you know, we, we lost that client after all these years, but we'll just go and talk to their competitors now. bit naughty, really, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, I can't understand what you do, but it's not really. I, you know, I look at the. I think one of the things that I've learned uh, um, in the past, or well, since running in, in, in Dargo, is is that it's all about relationships, and and everyone knows everyone. We know Australia is a you know relatively small country. We know the industry is relatively small. You just can't you can't do that to people. You know, you know, it just it makes no business sense to to wrong people and and. and you know, utilize that kind of behavior. I think it just comes up and bites you. Um, I certainly think to chase a, a competitor client after you've uh, finished a relationship is not, not the best way forward. Now, I do have a que- another question for you, uh, Gary, and that is, you know, when you've been unsuccessful, and I know it doesn't happen that often, you know, out of the 500. Too often, too you're, often. You're pretty, <laughs> but you know, give us some feedback on uh, when you get feedback after the after a pitch. So when you've been unsuccessful, first of all, do you often get feedback? And secondly, is it valuable? This actually deeply upsets me. And I think about how many, you know, times I've, I've gone home and I can't think many things that my job upset me, but this is one of the things that truly upsets me. And I talk to my wife about it quite regularly, where you've built up a relationship with someone that you've gone through this process with. It might have happened over months. I might have spoken to them 20, 30 times phone calls, face-to-face, you know, Zoom, whatever. And, you know, you, you become friends with these people, I believe, to an extent. You know, I, I know how old their children are, where they go to school. I, You know, I understand things about their personal life, them about mine. We've built this relationship. I've invested time. My agency has invested time. And then you get ghosted or what I would call ghosted where, you know, you haven't run the RFP. Sometimes I found out via other people in the industry. And then you can't get any feedback. And it's really common. And, and I would say far too common. And the conversation we have is, is well, why would you not give feedback? And, and, and often we sit there and we think, well, did we generally upset them? Which we don't believe to be the case because, you know, we've built the relationship with them. Are they scared to give you feedback as in they feel bad? Is there that kind of they're, they're just intimidated to give you feedback? Or do they genuinely not care? Which I don't believe either. But I would say, if I had to hasten a guess, I would say at least 50% of, of RFPs, we do not get any kind of 
decent feedback other than you've been unsuccessful someone was better <laughs> I mean, I think I think it's a, I think it's a real shame and it's appalling I, but it's really commonplace and now I hope when you're running a process that you you get that feedback and you insist on it as part of the process which I, I'm going to assume that you do but it's amazing how often we never hear from them again and, and that's it we get totally ghosted and it does it leaves a bit of a sour taste in your mouth the truth be told well we actually have a policy of uh, uh, brutal candor Totally. So we are absolutely 100% transparent and honest in the feedback that we provide. Because um, yeah, my belief is you're, if you've invested the time and the goodwill in performing uh, through a pitch process, the least, the very least you should have got out of it is feedback that allows you to, where possible, improve for next time to become a better agency, Especially. more successful, and win more pitches because there's very little else for uh, in the way of prizes for the runners-up. Totally. But, but it is it is amazing how often, as I said, 50% of, of, of the time I reckon we get uh, almost no response. And as I said, sometimes totally ghosted where, you know, you can't reach them by phone and or email. So it does, it does surprise me. But, you know, such is the way of the world and you, you often move on. But I've got a question for you, actually, if that's all right. Sure. So... The incumbent. Now, you know, sometimes you have to go out to, to tender because, you know, it's a procurement process, you're a government organization, and, you know, that's the, the, the way your business is structured. Um, sometimes, you know, you know the incumbent, the, the age, the, the client's not happy with the incumbent. Should the incumbent be involved? You know, is it more often than not the incumbent has no chance of winning? Do you have a viewpoint around the incumbent agency? So it's really interesting, and this is uh, an area that we often disagree with procurement because they say it's the end of the contract, we have to go to market, and that incumbent has to be included. And we point out that when you look at the data from uh, Convergence, which is a global company that tracks pitches, the chance of the incumbent winning is one in five. Is that true? Is that just, I don't know if you all know this, but is that like a, a very recent? Was that pulled like five years ago? How recent is that? No, stuff, no, that's, that's based on uh, last year and the year before, 2019, oh, really? 2020. So, you know, a lot of marketers go, <laughs> oh, the incumbent's got a good chance of winning because, you know, they know my business. No, the incumbent's got very little chance of winning. Wow. So our point is don't include the incumbent unless they actually do have a good chance of winning. Okay. One in five. Wow. I'm, I'm, honestly, I thought you were going to have no answer for that, or certainly not as a data-led approach as answers. I'm amazed. Which is why we say to clients, you know, when you get to the end of a contract, don't going to market is not the best way of knowing if your current relationship is a high-performance relationship. There are other ways of doing it. And in fact, going to market is incredibly flawed because, and I, I said this to a procurement person in. Uh, in the US that got very upset. I said, this is, are you married? He said, yes. I said, well, how long have you been married? Seven years. How do you feel about going home to your partner tonight and saying, look, it's been seven years, the relationship's good, but I just want to test it by going and dating with some other people for, let's say, another three to six months. And then I'll come back and if you're still the best, then I'll commit to another seven years. And he said, it's nothing like that. And I said, it's everything like that. What we're dealing with here is beyond just capabilities and price. We're dealing with what becomes integral relationships between the two. 
and that the way to test it is not to stress test it in the market where people can say whatever they like to win it, but they have no obligation to actually deliver if they're successful. The, I mean, it's actually the, the first point in this guide is why change agency? You know, it's, it's laborious, it's time consuming, the, the, you know, that transfer of IP. I think the first question you have to, to, to look at, is there an error, uh, error in second, oh, I can't even say, are there differences that we Irreconcilable can't Irreconcilable differences. Oh, thank you. Honestly, thank you so much. And the funny thing is I've got the word in front of me, which makes it even worse, uh, is, is, yeah, I mean, can you get over them? If you can't get over them, then go out to, to tender. But really, you should be trying to make it work, um, like you would do with a marriage. I think it's the same example, isn't it? You know, as your marriage, you don't just leave. Um, you've got to try and make these things work. And if you can't make it work, then you look elsewhere. Well, I read an article only today by RV Dan, a pitch consultant in the US, and he said that the current average uh, tenure of a client agency relationship is 2.7 years, according to him. He didn't quote his source, but he said that's come down from seven point something years. It's in Forbes anyway. Uh, you can read it there. And, uh, and look, I think, you know, a lot of this has been driven by this idea that it, rather than commit to the relationship and make it work harder, it's become disposable. This idea of going to tender every three years or every time a contract's at its end has become the you know, go-to strategy and it just doesn't work. And it doesn't work for a whole lot of things which I've written about many times. But, yeah, Gary, look, I'm so sorry. I've just realised the time. Um, you've managed to get me, uh, what do they call it, soapboxing, you know, talking about something <laughs> I'm passionate about and the time's just got away from us. But, look, uh, I would absolutely recommend that if anyone hasn't downloaded, I'm sure you've got thousands of downloads, but thousands. it is How to Avoid Choosing the Wrong Digital Agency in 27 Steps. It's available from your website, isn't it? It is. So uh, what's that, uh, indagodigital.com.au, is that? Exactly, perfect. And, um, and uh, look, the only thing I'd say is if you're doing addition to 28th step or maybe the first step is contact Trinity P3, but I would have to say that because uh, this is my podcast. <laughs> but thank Thanks. you very much. Thank you very much, Dad. I really appreciate your time, as always. I do have one last question. In all those 500 pitches, is there a single client that you would never pitch for again? Ooh.